Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 132. This is an interview and was recorded on November 2nd, 2023. I was in New Orleans, probably still am, and my guest, Selena Baker, was in a secure, undisclosed location in Austin, Texas. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism, or at least as little as we can get away with. Also, if you are a new listener, sidebar is our term for an episode off the timeline, which I do occasionally when I come across something interesting or in recognition of a holiday, that sort of thing. This is something interesting. Selena lives in Austin and has just published The Line of Splendor, a biographical novel of the life of General Nathaniel Green, regarded by most historians as George Washington's most important lieutenant. We talk about Green's life, his famous Southern Campaign in 1781, in which he and his men drove the British out of the Carolinas and Georgia while losing most of the battles they actually fought. Green's stint as Washington's quartermaster general and his talent for logistics, his friendship with fellow boy wonder Henry Knox, and what might have been had Green not died shortly after the end of the war. Julia Child advised never to explain or apologize, but I don't have her confidence. Regarding the sound, we recorded the interview over our phones and jets out of the Naval Air Station Joint Reserve Base in New Orleans kept buzzing downtown here, so the audio may sound a bit different than usual. Hope it isn't annoying. So let's get on with it. I bring you Selena Baker. Selena, good morning. Thank you for joining us here on the History of the Americans podcast. How are you? Thank you, Jack. Good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So um, you've written a biographical novel of Nathaniel Green, one of America's great generals during the American Revolution. Um, maybe um, you could start by telling us a little bit about, you know, sort of who you are, what you've done, how you got into the historical novel game, that kind of thing. Um, I've been writing since 2005. I wrote a couple of standalone novels uh, based in Victorian America. Weren't really based on anything major history, but they are considered historical since it's uh, Victorian America. After I wrote those two and published them, I wrote uh, a four-book historical fantasy series about the American Revolution called Angels and Patriots. Um, and it's published as well. And Nathaniel Green was an char important character, of course, in three of those novels. So I spent a lot of time researching him. And uh, once the um, series was done, I was at a loss as what to do next. And I decided to write a novel about Nathaniel Green because I became quite taken with him while I was writing my series. And um, I had been to Coventry, where he lived before the war, Savannah, where he's buried, and battlefields between here and Boston, between uh, Savannah and Boston. And I also do presentations on him. I've spoken at Valley Forge, Washington Crossing, and Boston several times, and I'm speaking at some of the SAR and DAR groups here in Texas as well. So maybe um, since you're expert on the topic at this point, maybe you could um, outline for our listeners um, 
you know, uh, Nathaniel Green's life a little bit um, without going into tremendous detail. And then we can tackle some of some of the sort of questions and thoughts we had discussed before the podcast. Um, sure. Um, he was born in Rhode Island in 1742. He was uh, the fourth son of a Quaker preacher and prosperous businessman. And uh, <clears throat> his uh, education was limited to reading, writing, and math. So he, therefore, was a self-educated man. He, uh, His father thought book learning beyond that what led to temptation and sin. And he was like, I can't sit still for this. I, I need to be feel like I'm in the fog of not being educated. So he took it upon himself. He also um, ran the family iron forge in Coventry, Rhode Island. His father sent him there. So he managed and operated it and pounded out smelt uh, beside the men who um, made anchors, sold in Newport. Uh, he had a ship called the Fortune that was confiscated by... Um, a British Royal Navy officer named William Duddingston. And this uh, was one of the factors that led to the burning of the Gatsby in June 1772. And so this kind of threw Nathaniel into the current of rebellion. Uh, and then all the other things that happened with uh, parliamentary taxes, control of colonial autonomy, and, and he participated in the rebellion against these things. He was also a member of the East Greenwich, Rhode Island uh, militia company, the Kentish Guards. They denied him a uh, lieutenancy because he had a limp. So when the first shots of the American Revolution were fired in Massachusetts on April 19, 1775, the Rhode Island General Assembly formed an army of observation and they plucked Nathaniel Green from the ranks and made him general. He marched his army to Boston, where the provincial militia had the British under siege. When uh, George Washington arrived with the, as the new commander of the recently formed Continental Army, Nathaniel was one of eight brigadiers, eight provincial brigadiers promoted to Continental Army brigadier generals. And how old was he then? He was 32. He was the youngest, uh, the army's youngest general. When the siege of Boston was broken, uh, he, of course, moved to New York with Washington's Continental Army and was given command of a string of five strategic forts on Brooklyn Heights. Uh, he became, uh, when the, the British then became, uh, started dropping anchor in New York Harbor about that time, it was in the summer of 1776. During that time, he became ill uh, and almost died, and they took him off Brooklyn Heights uh, to a house in Manhattan. So he was not there for the Battle of Long Island, which we know the Continentals uh, were defeated there. But he uh, became one of Washington's most favored generals, major generals, and he participated in just about every single battle under Washington uh, during the Revolutionary War. Then, of course, he was uh, made quartermaster general in 1778, a job he despised. But he did it well, and um, that lasted a couple of years. He resigned in seven, July 1780, and then Washington assigned him command of the Southern Army after Horatio Gates' army was defeated at Camden by uh, British General Lord Charles Cornwallis. 
Uh, he went on to be successful in his campaign, although he did lose every battle. However, the campaign was extremely successful. He drove Cornwallis out of the Carolinas and into Virginia. And I will argue with the best of them that if it hadn't been for Nathaniel Green, Yorktown likely would not have happened. Um, he, After the war was over, he went home to Rhode Island. And he was in horrible debt. He had had to spend money to provide uh, clothes for his troops in um, South Carolina. He wasn't getting, the Continental Congress wasn't sending him money. And he signed a promissory note for 30,000 pounds to uh, clothe his troops, which threw him into horrible debt, which he never recovered before his death in 1786. All right. Well, I think that that's a... Fantastic summary. It's not surprising since you've given that talk uh, at various uh, <laughs> in front of various audiences before, probably with the help of PowerPoint slides and a, and a reaction. Yes. So, you know, it's interesting to me. Green was a great hero of the American Revolution. In its aftermath, there are something like a half dozen towns and counties named after him, maybe more. There's statues of him stretching from Rhode Island to the Carolinas, maybe Georgia. Um, You'd know better than me. Um, And yet he's a little bit uh, faded, I'd say, uh, notwithstanding your great efforts, from the uh, consciousness of Americans today. Do you have any any thoughts on why that might have happened? I think the first thing that comes to mind is that he died in 1786 at age 43. So he never went on to do anything after that, um, like a lot of the founders did. They went on to participate in politics or like Anthony Wayne uh, went on to command an army in Ohio. And so I think that he, even though, like you said, there's all, there's literally hundreds of places named after him. I think because of his early death, uh, he was forgotten. Unfortunately, it's kind of like Dr. Joseph Warren as well, who died very young and didn't, wasn't able to go on and, and continue to support the new country. Hmm. Yeah, Joseph Warren, I think some of our listeners will know, although many of you know we haven't gotten to the American Revolution yet. Joseph Warren died at Bunker Hill, as I recall. Yes, age 34. I'm not yet as expert on the revolution as I uh, as I, I will need to be if and when I live long enough to get there actually in the timeline <laughs> of, of the podcast. Uh, so... Um, I want to swing back to uh, Green's legacy a bit later in in the podcast. Um, As I, and and you should correct me if you disagree, but, but, you know, there's sort of uh, regarding his revolutionary war career, um, you know, there's sort of uh, in my mind, three segments. One is um, in the first couple of years of fighting in the north, uh, basically from the siege of Boston to the battle for New York to the retreat across New Jersey, battles of Trenton and Princeton and early 
1777 and so forth. And then the, the second phase is, as you say, when Washington, his army, you know, underfed, undersupplied, poorly dressed, um, he turns over the uh, it essentially, you know, uh, requests slash demands that uh, Green serve as quartermaster general in charge of logistics for the Continental Army. Uh, and then the third phase is, as you say, uh, in my mind anyway, being simple about it, uh, when he was dispatched to the Carolinas in, uh, I think it was, uh, he got there in December of 1780. Right. And, right. Um, and led that um, sort of... Uh, tactically disastrous, but strategically victorious, paradoxical campaign in the South. Um, maybe, um, you know, I guess of those, of those three segments, um, um, I, I, which, which do you think was most crucial to the survival of the uh, American cause? In general, in crucial to the American cause in general, I, I would say the Southern campaign only because they felt like they were losing the war in the South, which they were, the, the Patriots were. Uh, there was a lot of um, uh, partisan warfare going on down there already, and you had men down there like Francis Marion, Thomas Sumner fighting the good fight down there, but um, they had lost Charleston to the British. They had lost Savannah to the British. They had lost Wilmington, North Carolina to the British. And these are big port cities down there. Of course, Clinton's holding New York. So that's even a bigger city up in the North. But I, I think that um, that was probably the most crucial part of of the war was the Southern campaign. Um, it led to Yorktown, which of course led to the surrender, and and that's my opinion. Fair, fair enough. All right. Well, everybody, there's a couple of uh, Navy jets flying over right now, so that's what that was. <laughs> I can uh, hear that. <laughs> so this is what happens in podcasts. Okay, so. Um, even though it's sort of later in the chronology, why don't we spend some time talking about the Southern campaign? And I'll, I'll frame it up based on my uh, limited knowledge. So um, Horatio Gates, who had been the victorious general at Saratoga, had been in charge of uh, the American forces in the Carolinas for some months, I think. I don't think it was a terribly yeah. long time. And, no, it was, it was very short. And his command had been sort of catastrophic. You know, the, as I remembered that the, um, the Continentals were down to a couple of thousand, maybe two and a half thousand soldiers. They were outnumbered probably two to one or more by the English um, and the Carolinas and Georgia had pretty much fallen under the control of the British, who had a string of inland fortifications along rivers 
that allowed them to essentially control lines of communication throughout the South. And uh, each of those fortifications was essentially an arms depot from which they could range out and put down such patriotic resistance as might have emerged. Um, Gates had retreated, I think, into the middle of North Carolina. Yeah, Hillsboro. By the time he uh, was relieved of command and Green went down to assume it in December of uh, uh, 1780. Um, And then in in rough terms, the reason why uh, we've talked about it being a string of defeats that led to strategic victory is that Green, um, for a, a space of about 10 months, um, ran a really very unconventional campaign that had the effect of exhausting the British under Cornwallis in the region. And um, almost every occasion, on most occasions, uh, uh, when uh, the uh, Americans under Green came to actual shooting with the English. Uh, the Americans had to surrender the field. Um, but in each case, the loss in either men or materiel to the English uh, was such that um, the Americans became stronger in the region and the, and the British weaker. Um, maybe you could talk through some of the key moments of that 10-month period, which, as you say, ended with Cornwallis uh, pinned to the ocean in Yorktown. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll sort of turn it over to you and let you sort of pick and choose what you think are some of the cooler moments from that, that campaign. <laughs> um, this is actually my favorite campaign of the war. So if I carry on about it, it's because of that. But, uh, Green got down there and he did assume command from Gates. It was in a, it was a formal, uh, uh, change of command. Gates was back with his army down there in Charlotte, North Carolina. And um, Nathaniel, when he, when he, I'll call him Nathaniel since I wrote a Please novel do. about him. <laughs> so, Please do. <laughs> Nathaniel, the remaining army that Gates had was 2,300 strong, but only 800 of those men were properly armed and equipped. So his army was really very, very small. So Nathaniel was left with the choice, what do I do? Cornwallis is 70 miles south in Winsboro, South Carolina. He's got 4,000 men under his command just in Winsboro. This isn't, as you said, the rest of the state, uh, North and South Carolina and Georgia. He decides to, Nathaniel decides to divide his army. And this is something that you, a military strategy that was known that you never divide your army in the face of a superior foe, but he did so. He sent Daniel Morgan to Northwest South Carolina. And Nathaniel moved his army to Cheraw, South Carolina. Cornwallis sent Colonel uh, Cavalry Colonel Bannister Tarleton after Morgan, and Morgan uh, ended up clashing with Tarleton at a place called the Cowpens. And uh, this was a pivotal moment in the Southern campaign. It was a win. Morgan won the battle. 
they took a thousand prisoners. Uh, Cornwallis lost a thousand men in that battle. Nathaniel Green sends his army to Salisbury, North Carolina, and he sets out by himself with a small contingent of guards to support Morgan, where they began a retreat toward Salisbury with Cornwallis on there chasing them. Uh, Cornwallis is, has gone after them. He's infuriated. He's lost all these men. So um, Cornwallis burns his baggage train while he's chasing Green and Morgan toward Salisbury to lighten his army's pursuit. And this causes Cornwallis's army to become exhausted. Uh, they're sleeping in no tents. They're starving. Um, Green shifts his army's junction to Guilford Courthouse, North Carolina. And when his army links up there, they, he holds a rare war council. Green doesn't, Nathaniel didn't hold war councils. He mostly made decisions on his own. He holds a war council and his officers agree that they should retreat to the Dan River on the border of North Carolina and Virginia so that their army would not be annihilated. General Daniel Morgan is, is sick. He's uh, suffering from rheumatism and other problems. He goes home to Virginia. And Nathaniel divides his army again, and he uh, he forms a light corps to screen his army from Cornwallis while he is going to take his army to the Dan River. He gives this command to uh, Colonel Lighthorse Harry Lee and Colonel Otha Holland Williams, and they're the screening uh, detachment. While he races to the dam, Cornwallis chases him, um, but Nathaniel Green makes it there first, and they get across into Virginia. His whole army gets across. He loses a lot of militia along the way, Nathaniel does, but the entire army gets across. It gives him a chance to rest. It gives him a chance to think. I want to pause briefly. In several of these river crossings, at least Green's biographers um, give him credit for uh, having had the foresight to sort of commandeer all the boats in the region. Presumably these yes. are fishing boats, rowboats, canoes, practically anything that can, that can work. So he's, he's got an edge crossing the many rivers that, 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 that go through this region. Um, yes. And, and is that um, an example? Is, is that a super obvious thing? Should we take that as he's just being organized or is that in part reflect his longstanding sense of logistics, which had already been, uh, <laughs> you know, the basis for appointing him as quartermaster general? Um, yes, it's good planning on his part. Uh, it does reflect part of his being a quartermaster general. Uh, he did have the river surveyed when he first got down there. So he was aware of the geography. Um, he had Colonel Kosciuszko <laughs> was his engineer down there. I think is that how you say his name? Yeah, that is how um, you say his name. He assigned him to build boats, not only him, but other uh, people that were down there, some militia generals, uh, William Davidson, some others. Uh, William Davidson got killed in one of those river crossings. It was called the Battle of Cowan's Ford. Uh, there was also a crossing across the Yadkin. Uh, 
as well. And, and I think Green knew you had to take these boats because if you didn't, the enemy was going to get across the river yeah. and you didn't have time to rest. So, yeah, I think it was good planning on his part. And he, he realized that ahead of time. All right. Well, sorry to derail you. Why don't you uh, keep going? No, no, that's <laughs> what was I saying? Um, we've crossed the uh, Dan. We're the crossed dan. the Dan, and we've, we've, we're yeah. resting now. Yeah, yeah, they're resting. They're figuring out what to do. And uh, he gets a but all of a sudden he uh, comes back into North Carolina, and the uh, militia there realize he hasn't abandoned them. He, that's what they think at first, that he's abandoned them and they abandoned him, the North Carolina militia. But when he came back into North Carolina, he had thousands of new militia join him, North Carolina militia. And a few Continentals were sent from Virginia. And uh, he decided that he was going to make his stand at Guilford Courthouse, which is the place he'd been before. So he went back there and he did a lot of reconnoitering and making decisions and Cornwallis knew he was there, and Cornwallis had 1,900 men opposed to the 4,500 men Nathaniel Green had. They clashed at Guilford Courthouse on March 15, 1781. The battle lasted two hours. The enemy turned his left flank. He called a retreat to preserve his army. And Cornwallis won this battle, but he lost 500 men. And this is when he retreated down to Wilmington, North Carolina, and said, you know what? I've had enough of Nathaniel Green. We need to get resupplied. And that's when Nathaniel then turned his attention to, like you were saying, the British outposts in South Carolina. And this was a critical part of the war because, like you said, this was their communication line. This is from where they had arms stored. This is where for, these outposts were where they... Uh, forged for food. He he took those outposts out one at a time. He sent Light Horse Harry Lee, Francis Sumner, Andrew Pickens. They took these places out one at a time. Nathaniel uh, himself led a siege at the last British outpost uh, at 96. Well, before that, he actually had a battle at a place called Hogkirk's Hill in Camden, South Carolina. Sorry, forgot about that. Uh, where Lord Francis Rodden was, it, he had a British outpost there in Camden with 900 British troops and loyalists. And Francis Rodden uh, attacked Nathaniel Green, whose army was uh, stationed at Hobkirk's Hill, about two miles north. He surprised them on the morning of April 25th, 1781. And Nathaniel Green called a retreat during that battle. His... Um, one of his Maryland lines bowed. They they fell back and they they formed a bow, and it threw everybody else off. And the Virginia re, uh, regiments thought that that it was a retreat. And um, when they were reformed, it was too late, and they lost the battle anyway. And this this battle infuriated Nathaniel because uh, he thought that the Maryland Colonel John Gumby had caused the Maryland line to bow. And this, this caused the loss at Hopkirk's Hill. But on uh, May 18th, just a month later, he laid siege to the last remaining outpost in South Carolina at 96. And that's in western South Carolina. And that siege was went on for a month. 
Um, they tried all kinds of things to get Colonel John Kruger out of that starboard, including catching the roof on fire and a mayhem tower where they fired down onto into the fort. And they dug trenches and Kosciuszko, his engineer, was digging trenches. And it was just on and on. And the whole time, Lord Francis Rodden is marching toward 96. And Green's got to get the siege done before Rodden gets there. And he calls a retreat, and his men say, we're not retreating. We've been digging in these trenches for a month, and you're going to make us leave? And um, he listened to them and let them attack the Star Fort. He called them his forlorn hope. They attacked the Star Fort, and they were annihilated. It ended in bloody hand-to-hand combat, and he called a retreat. And yet the British but had to give up the fort fairly soon thereafter, as I recall. Eventually, yes, exactly, they did. I think Rodden had the outpost burned eventually, I believe. Um, so that, the, Yeah, that was... Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so over the course of this southern campaign... Um, how many, how many, uh, do, do you have a sense, I don't know if you've ever added it up, but how many miles did Green march his army during those 10 months, if you ever plotted that out? Yeah, that's interesting you ask that. He had a Delaware captain named Robert Kirkwood. And Robert Kirkwood uh, came to Nathaniel Green one day and said, do you know that we've logged in 771 miles in this campaign so far? And that was sometime, I can't remember exactly when Kirkwood told him that, whether it was after the siege of 96 or not. It was around that time. So that was quite a lot of miles for, um, considering a lot of it was on foot. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 771 miles is basically the distance from, you know, call it, you know, Hackensack, New Jersey to Chicago, you know, New York to Chicago, in effect. Uh, so that's a hell of a long way. And then if you consider the terrain in the Carolinas, which is as drained by one river after another with, especially in South Carolina, swamps in between. Not now. There's very exactly. nice, very nice housing developments and golf courses, but then I don't lots know. Of so- <laughs> <laughs> there are golf courses. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, it was much, uh, much more difficult. Okay. So, um, uh, but green, so, so, as the year goes by, the English are basically pushed back to this thin strip along the coast that includes the three big ports, Wilmington, North Carolina, um, Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, as I recall. And But Green, right. Green does not um, himself go north for Yorktown, or does he? I've lost track of that one. No, no he doesn't. So he stays in the South, and uh, this is a putting putting the conclusion, uh, sort of the end of this, a little ahead of, of some of the other stuff he did earlier in the war. He's awarded, like, big plantations by the governors of the states uh, in gratitude for essentially having liberated the three southern states. Um, and that, yes. uh, that and, and so you have the curious case of this, you know, Rhode Island, originally a Rhode Island merchant 
uh, and and foundry owner who was making anchors for a living is now all of a sudden has the the at least the property of a southern gentleman um, all in the course of about five years if I uh, if memory serves quite a quite a transformation um, and maybe maybe we can come back to that so um, what was it or maybe you've maybe you've got an opinion on it anyway what was it that that made Washington like green so much I mean he's such a young guy um, a generation behind Washington uh, yet his favorite general and he had some people to compete with I mean Henry Knox was a remarkably young and interesting person too what what was it about green that attracted washington to him this is one of the most common questions i get is is that and in my opinion i think it was the fact that and this is my opinion they were both self-educated they both worked on their family's farms as, as kids uh Green's father was also a farmer. They both had this undying sense of duty for their freedom of their country. Um, neither one of them went home during the war. Well, Greenwood was there a couple of times, very briefly, and not on furlough, really. Uh, he was at home during the Battle of Rhode Island. He stopped by uh, Coventry then. But anyway... Um, so we, I don't think we'll ever really know the answer to that question, but those were the things that they had in common. And, you know, sometimes you meet people and you just kind of click with them. And yeah. I'm sure that's, you know, I, I just, there was something about the two of them that just clicked and it stayed that way until green died. Fair enough. So, um, Let's talk a little bit about that. So, so um, about Green's uh, death. So he he dies in the South, which he's made yes. his his home because he's been granted all this uh, uh, all of this land by the southern by the southern states. Um, you know how uh, if you were going to speculate if he'd lived if he'd lived. Um, you know, what, what do you think he would have done in the post-revolutionary era? Uh, would he have remained a Southerner? Would he have straightened out his finances? Would he have gone back to New England? Would he have participated in politics or gone back to being a merchant? What, 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 do you have a thought on that? How do you imagine it might have turned out if he'd lived? I think that he would have stayed in the South, um, that he was living at Mulberry Grove, a plantation in uh, right outside of Savannah, Georgia, with his wife, Katie, and their five children. Uh, his He began to kind of dream of becoming a Southern planter, a rice king, whatever you want to call those guys back in the day. He was not keen on being a politician. He was offered... Uh, Minister of War in 1780 and turned it down. Of course, we know that went to General Benjamin Lincoln, but um, 
Green said, Nathaniel said that he didn't want to be a politician, that it was easy to get in high places, but he was poor. And, and without money, you couldn't stay there. I don't know if he would have. I think if Washington had called on him to serve in the cabinet, that Nathaniel would have done so. <clears throat> he might yeah. have been Secretary of War instead of Henry Knox. And by the way, he and Henry Knox were extremely close friends. Uh, they had known each other before the war. Green had bought books at and Green. Green had bought books at Knox's bookstore, right? Right. Yeah, he would go to Boston and buy books there. Yeah. So and he may have even he bought a, a musket in 1774. He may have even bought that. Just speculating, bought that musket through Henry Knox's connections. Not sure, uh, for sure, but yes. So let's digress just a, a moment because again. Uh, there, we got a lot of listeners of the podcast who know a lot about the revolution. I, I am sure. And we also have a bunch who don't because the podcast itself is only in 1645 yeah. or so. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, let's, let's divert a little bit. And maybe this is unfair because we didn't prep this, but maybe you could tell our listeners a little about Henry Knox because he, in my mind, is the closest analog to green uh, in terms of you know loyalty to washington age capacity to innovate overcoming astonishing adversity maybe if you tell a uh, tell a uh, uh you know tell us who he was and and what he did uh, especially early in the war uh, that might be helpful to some people uh henry knox was from boston he was younger than nathaniel he was eight years younger, born in 1750. He was actually belonged to street gangs. Uh, they used to have something called Pope's Night there, Guy Fox Night. And uh, Henry Knox belonged to the South End gang. The gangs would come together, burn their effigies and say, yay, you know, have a good time <laughs> celebrating all that. And he was one of those guys that did that. But uh, he bought a bookstore, I think it was in 1771. He was very young called the London Bookstore. And as you said, you know, Nathaniel Green would, would go to Boston and buy books from Henry Knox. But what Henry Knox ended up doing that was the, his, what he was best known for, I would say, is that uh, when Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen took Fort Ticonderoga, there was a lot of artillery up there in, in New York. And, um, with the approval of the Continental Congress, uh, Washington sent Henry Knox up there to retrieve the artillery. He dragged 60 tons of artillery from Fort Ticonderoga, New York, to Framingham, Massachusetts. One of the greatest feats of, of the war ever was dragging that artillery. And they used that artillery to uh, mount it on Dorchester Heights on the night of March 4, 1776, and pointed it at the British under siege in Boston. And British General William Howe's like, I think it's time to go. And the British evacuated Boston because of that. And that, that was all Henry Knox's greatest feat. Um, but he went on to become a, a colonel. In, in charge of the Continental Artillery. And um, 
He was by Washington's side, like you said, the entire war. So is Nathaniel Green. Those were the only two generals that were there the entire war. And they were besides both, Washington. both astonishingly young. Uh, yes, and, both of and, them were. And, and if you, uh, you know, learn about them, I mean, the adversity that they overcame uh, at their age is sh- shocking to read about today. You know, um, uh, it's uh, the sort of thing that is almost beyond the imagination of Americans today to think about some of the stuff they did at the ages they did them with the resources they had at hand. Unbelievable. Um, all right. Well, I don't want to uh, uh, take up too much of your time. Um, can you um, talk a little bit about um, um, uh, Nathaniel's um, stretch as quartermaster general? You know, an army travels on its stomach. The American military has been known for its logistics for a very long time, uh, and. Uh, to some degree, I, I would I would argue that Nathaniel Green is the uh, father of uh, America, the American Army's focus on logistics. Um, he um, uh, famously had prepositioned supplies across New Jersey in 1776, in yes. anti- anticipation that the Continental Army would have to retreat across the state which they did, in fact, need to do. Uh, but he became quartermaster general, I think. Uh, was it just before or during the awful winter at Valley Forge? And maybe... It was uh, uh, during. He was actually officially uh, promoted to quartermaster general on March 2nd, 1778. He did not want the job. Washington in the Continental Congress or committee from Congress pressed him to take the job. The uh, department was in disarray. General Thomas Mifflin had resigned as quartermaster general. And um, so Nathaniel was worried that it was going to, as he said, quote, confine me to a series of drudgery and take him from field command. And he didn't want to be taken from field command. This was something that he feared very much. And this is also where I got the name of my novel, uh, The Line of Splendor. He wrote to Joseph Reed that when they made him quartermaster general, that they had taken him from the line of splendor, meaning the front lines on the battlefield. But Everything he did, he did to the best of his ability. He did it for his family. He did it for Washington and the Army. He did it for his country. And he sacrificed to do this. And he bat his battles with Congress while he was the quartermaster general are, are epic. The, the whole department was in a mess. Um, they started accusing the Congress started accusing him and his uh, deputies of um, misappropriating their one percent commissions that they received for every dollar they spent, continental dollar they spent. So he was constantly in Philadelphia trying to clear up that their accusations that he was in meetings. He hated Philadelphia. 
he got would get more and more frustrated over it, but yet he still he still made sure he still he scouted out campsites, like you said. Logistics was so important: saddles and wagons and horses and clothes and everything. And he was in charge of all of that. And of course, he had deputies to help him with this. Um, but um. He resigned several times. The first time he resigned in 1779, and Congress ignored his resignation letter. And when in the winter of uh, 1780 in Morristown, they were snowed in, and he kept writing them and saying, why are you ignoring my resignation letters? And they just were like, you know, too bad, buddy. Uh, We need you as quartermaster general. And he still did his duty. Yeah. 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 They rearranged the quartermaster department in 1780, and that was the final straw for him. And he wrote a horrible letter to Congress, and they got so irritated with him that they threatened to remove him from the Army. Now, I had read somewhere, I think, uh, and maybe it's uh, maybe it's even in your novel, um, that uh, – we got another jet going over here – that um, – even while serving as quartermaster general, hang on, um, the uh, uh, Washington included Green in his Council of War, his staff meetings, uh, um, which was a departure from conventional practice at the time, if I understand that correctly. Yes. Um, and so that, I guess, is uh, further further evidence of uh, uh, Washington's uh, uh, affection for the guy. Um, all right. Well, look, um, perhaps uh, we could conclude uh, by you telling us a little bit about the process of writing a historical biography, uh, which is a, a topic I'm actually interested in, even if nobody else listening to this may be, maybe, <laughs> maybe many are, I don't know, but, uh, after the jets go over, there's a air base near New Orleans and they sometimes do flyovers for the group oh, here. Oh, it's Seidel or Seidel or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think on sunny days, they love buzzing the French Quarter, and we're quite near there. <laughs> uh, in any case, so if you could share with us a little bit about the process that you went through and, and whether you have plans to do another one, and then maybe conclude by telling us how people can buy your novel. Okay. Uh, I... I, uh, like I said earlier, I wrote a four book historical fantasy series about the American Revolution called Angels and Patriots, and it spanned the revolution from December 1774 through the surrender at Yorktown. So I was already deep into researching about the American Revolution. So by the time I wrote this book about Nathaniel Green, I had a lot of resources at my fingertips, or I knew where to look for things. I've read countless biographies on people. Green, uh, Gerald Carbone was one of the biographies I read. Um, Countless biographies on people who knew Green, who Green fought with, uh, on Katie Green, his wife. And um, also, if you look in the back of some of these biographies, you can find their resources, the resources they used. 
And a lot of these are, are you can find them online nowadays, uh, primary resources. One of the big ones I used was uh, George Washington Green, his grandson's uh, three-volume book on the life of Nathaniel Green, which had primary resources. He had all his letters in there. Ah, and um, yeah, or he actually was holding his letters. He had them with him, you know, in his possession. Um, so I, I, it's just a matter of keeping at it and searching for reliable resources. Uh, the Amer- Journal of the American Revolution or foundersarchives.org or Look in the back of a bibliography or a biography. Uh, my novel has a bibliography in it as well. Um, and it's just notes and notes and lots of notes and going over things over and over again and visiting the places Nathaniel Green was. Like I said, I've traveled everywhere from Boston to Savannah, Princeton, the place you're from, yeah. uh, where Nathaniel Green uh, fought there and... You just have to keep at it. Sometimes it's, it's exhausting. Yeah. But it's it's the same process as a biography. A biographical novel, I wrote that because there's a saying that says history tells you what happened, but historical fiction tells you how it felt. And Nathaniel Green made it very clear in his letters how he felt about everything. And it was not a stretch at all to be able to translate those into dialogue in the book also the letters written by daniel morgan or or george washington or henry knox or whoever it was they made their feelings known and if you pay attention to that you can get what they're thinking and what they would have said out of that because that's what they were thinking it's what they wrote in their their letters okay all right um, and how may people get your book? I guess it's uh, available on Amazon. Yes. I assume. It's available on all big booksellers, Barnes and Nobles, all of them. But Amazon is probably the most familiar for everyone. All right. All right. Well, I'll put a link. Uh, I'll find it and put a link uh, in the show notes to it uh, for this uh, for this episode, which I hope. Thank you. Uh, turns out correctly uh, once we've sorted through the technical details. Anyway, uh, Selena, thank you very, very much for joining us. And uh, I wish you all the best. Selena's from Austin. So maybe we'll get together for coffee again in the reasonably near future. And I can hear, hear about the next project if there, if there is one. There is a next project. All righty. I'm going to turn off the recording now. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks, Jack. Thank you again for listening. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a five-star rating on Apple and following me on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast. And finally, if you're going to be in Denver by any chance on Sunday, November 12th, that's a week from tomorrow, I'd love to have you come to the podcast meetup we're going to do. It'll either be at the Brown Palace Hotel bar there or somewhere quite nearby, probably late afternoon. I'll send around the details, put them on Twitter and the Facebook page. Until next time.